0: Well, as we dive into uh, the Word of God here together this morning, bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come humbly before you this morning, recognizing our need of your help to understand your Word. These truths are spiritually discerned, and so we need your Spirit to open our eyes to see. The glories and the wonders and the beauties of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to lay aside our pride and to approach humbly your word and see what it is that you have for us today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may have thought of this it this way or not, but every time that you open your Bible and read something out of it, It is a cross-cultural experience. It's a cross-cultural experience. We are opening the pages to another world, to another place, another time, in which people did things a different way. And therefore, as we seek to understand any passage of Scripture, we need to first place ourselves in that world to understand what's going on and why the people do what they do. And so we have been spending time, as we have been introducing or opening the book of Luke here, we've been spending time on the front side, getting situated in this foreign world of the first century Israel. Now there's a sense in which it may be very familiar to you because you've spent maybe your lifetime reading the Gospels or spending time in the Bible. But there's a sense in which because of where we spend our every day, that every time we open the Bible, we've got to get reoriented to the world that these people lived in, and that these, in which these events took place. And so last week, we began looking at the story that commences Luke's gospel, and we began looking at Three movements of this story, and this story is the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in this a story, we saw these three movements which reveal God's grace and his salvation plans, not only to the people at that time, but to us today as readers of Luke's gospel. And so the first movement that we looked at, and this is first part just as review, is a tragic situation in verses 5 through 7. In verses 5 through 7, follow along as I read those verses. Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. The first thing that we see in this tragic situation was first the time period, as you recall. Luke sets the stage by Writing that the events took place during the reign of Herod, king of Judea. We identified this man in history as Herod the Great. He was known for his administrative ability and his drive to build massive structures out of pride and paranoia that someone was going to kill him. And we know through other historical records that Herod reigned from 37 to 4 BC. Therefore, in giving the time here, For the births of Jesus and John and the prophecies of their births nine months prior, it seems best to place the events in verses 5 through 25 in the fall of 6 B.C. In the fall of 6 B.C. So that's the time period. And let us not glaze over that with uh, carelessness because By giving a time period, we are reminded that the events that take place not only here in this first account, but throughout the entire book of Luke, took place in history. In other words, what we read in this book are not make-believe stories made up by the disciples later on. These are things that took place on actual soil in an actual time and place. We must not forget that, and Luke is going to remind us of that time and time again. That our gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen again was not a made-up, fanciful story, but took place in an actual place, in actual time, in true history. So the time period is given to us. But secondly, we were introduced to the people. We saw the main characters of the current story. Luke introduces us to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And he makes a point to describe, number one, their ancestral pedigree. He says that they are both from the priestly line, and therefore the marriage was considered double-honored by the Jews. So, no, so he gives first their ancestral pedigree, but secondly, and more importantly, their spiritual pedigree. He says that they spiritually followed the law of the Lord and walked in all his ways. And we talked about how they were justified by their faith in God and then demonstrated that salvation through righteous actions. Luke says that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, last week, I spent some time speaking about the need for us too to live blameless lives, for those of you who were here and recall that. And I'd like to just clarify a couple points regarding that. I believe uh, what I said may have uh, not been as clear as possible. And so as we speak about blamelessness, particularly blamelessness for us in our lives today as New Testament believers, there's two great realities involved in our blamelessness that the Bible speaks of. The first is a final and complete blamelessness. A final and complete blamelessness. This is part of our glorification and our complete sanctification. This is when we will be made finally holy. And many of the verses that we looked at last week touched on that complete and final blamelessness. Such as Ephesians 1.4 where it says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. This is, therefore, God's ultimate goal in our salvation and our election. Or Colossians 1.22 that says that Jesus died in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, this is the final goal that ultimately, because of Christ's death, we will one day be presented holy and blameless before God. And that great passage that we ended with, Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before His presence of His glory with great joy. God's able to keep us from stumbling that we would one day be presented holy and blameless before the Lord. But there is a second and corresponding practical blamelessness that we should work for in the present. So yes, one day we will be blameless and perfectly holy, But that doesn't mean that we sit around and do nothing and just wait for that blamelessness. No, the Bible speaks of the fact that because that's going to be our ultimate goal and that's what the Lord's desire for us is, we should work in the here and now to live lives of holiness and blamelessness. In other words, because of what God has promised to do in us, what kind of people should we be now? Because God has elected us for holiness and Jesus died that we would be holy, shouldn't we desire to be holy? And that's what we see in, for example, in Hebrews 12, verse 11, where it says, Strive for holiness. Strive for holiness without which no one will see God. Therefore, if you want to see God one day, we must be striving for holiness now. Or... Familiar verses from 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So because God is holy and he has called us, we should seek to be holy in all of our conduct. Therefore, I think it is right and appropriate for believers, for you and I, to strive to be able to say that our lives are blameless, that we would be be able to say that we live a holy life, that our conduct is above reproach. And this is not to say that we are sinless or that we have reached a kind of perfection. Don't mishear me. But there's a kind of practical righteousness in which we are blameless of great transgression. In fact, this is what all those serving as elder must be able to say. For the, one of the qualifications, in fact, the first qualification in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, says that he must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. And Paul was able to say this as well. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, he said, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul knew that as he spent time with the Thessalonians, that he had holy and above reproach conduct. And so we, too, must strive to live blameless lives, being innocent of great transgression, as the psalmist prays for in Psalm 119. Now, obviously, in light of the gospel and all that Jesus has done for us, that kind of declaration cannot be made proudly at all. In fact, if we are to recognize that our lives are in some sense holy and blameless, we must fall on our knees in gratitude before the Lord to realize that it's because of His work in us, not because of anything that we have done of ourselves. Being above reproach and and holy is, is not inherently a prideful position to be in. It can be if we are not reminding ourselves of the gospel That the very transformation we see in us is because of the grace of God. Therefore, we will one day be completely blameless, but we strive for holiness here and now, day by day, moment by moment, fighting sin and seeking to live according to the Word of God. And, friends, that is possible. Don't let the world, the flesh, and the devil convince you otherwise. To lay down your arms and say, well, I'm just going to this life, there's sin, and so uh, what's, the worth, what's worth fighting it? You know, that's, that's surrender. And that does not give any glory to Jesus Christ because he saved you that you would be holy and blameless and now have his spirit to be able to fight in his power and to step forward with the confidence that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work in you. And as you strive for holiness, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, know and be in awe that the great God of the universe is at work in you, transforming your heart day by day and giving you new desires and helping you walk holy and blameless before him. In one sense, that's what Zechariah and Elizabeth had done. They had sought to live in the power of God, according to the word of God, and therefore the account could say that they were both righteous before God and walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. May that be able to be said of us as well, a goal that we should all seek to strive for. And so here in these verses, we've seen the time period that these events take place We've seen the people involved in the center of this tragic situation. And finally, in verse 7, let's see their predicament. Their predicament. Verse 7 But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, we don't know exactly how old they were. Jewish tradition says that old age sets in at 60 years, and so it's reasonable to conclude that these dear people were at least over 60. For the Jewish mind, this verse 7 would have elicited at least two responses. The first is that it's a shocking punchline to what we've just read. Verse 7 would have been a shocking punchline to verses 5 and 6. Because, you see, children were seen as a blessing from the Lord. Psalms 127 and 128 in particular speak of this blessing. Psalm 128 reads, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so, you fear the Lord, the psalm says, and you'll have many children around the table. And here we have a man and a woman who fear the Lord and their table is empty. And in Prior times, prior to the modern age, children were your business succession plan. They were your social safety net. They were your retirement plan. And so people had many children to be able to take care of them in old age, particularly as child mortality was high as well. And so, therefore, for them to hear of a morally exemplary couple who was childless was shocking. But the second response would, would have, for, for the, the Jew who was well read of his Old Testament, it would have clued him in to something else that's going on here. Because biblical history has shown that there have been other couples who have been old and childless, and it's exactly the, the setting of the stage for God to do something miraculous. Think about Israel's history. Right? Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17 and 18. They, too, were were old and had passed the childbearing years. And yet, God appeared and promised them that they would have a child about this time next year. And they both couldn't believe it. It was miraculous. We think of Rachel, who was also barren and And she said to Jacob, her husband, give me children or I die. She was desperate to have children. Or Samson's parents in Judges 13, Manoah and his wife, they too were barren and yet they were given a child by special miracle of the Lord. And of course, Hannah, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, whose Barren and is crying out before the Lord at the tabernacle and just weeping, asking that God would bless her with a child. And he does. And and through all these examples in Israel's history, the closest parallel, as we've seen, is Abraham and Sarah, who were not only barren, but were beyond the childbearing years. And therefore, it was a practical impossibility that a child would ever come And so we read the description of this dear couple, and we are moved to empathy, are we not? This dear couple that has longed for a child, and here they are without one. We can sense the desperate longing of their hearts. We can imagine the years of tearful prayers as they wept together, asking that the Lord would grant them a child. And we ache at the closing of the door of opportunity as Elizabeth passed in and then out of the childbearing years and her heart aching. And they believed that their aged hands would never hold their own child. I like how the historian Alfred Edersheim describes this. He writes, They had waited together these many years, Till in the evening of life the flower of hope had closed its fragrant cup and still the two sat together in the twilight, content to wait in loneliness till night with clothes around them. They were faithful to the Lord, but they were faithful alone without a child. And so therefore Luke begins this account by painting the picture of a tragic situation. But the narrative changes in verse 8. It changes to reveal what we see as the second movement of the story. First was a tragic situation in 5 through 7. Secondly, we see a gracious surprise in verses 8 through 23. A gracious surprise. And, and first in verses 8 through 10, we see the setting of this gracious surprise. The setting of this gracious surprise. Follow along as I read in verses 8 through 10. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense." The first thing we see in the setting of this gracious surprise is the place. Where is this taking place? It's the temple. He zooms in on the temple. Now, the temple in the first century was the greatest architectural project that Herod the Great had constructed. He wanted the Jews to be appeased, he wanted them to like him, and so he gave them a beautiful temple, and he spared no expense. The rabbis, in fact, were recorded as saying, he that has not seen the temple of Herod has never known what beauty is. They were so confident in the beauty of that temple. And when we speak of the temple or we read of the temple in the New Testament, it can often refer to the actual temple building, but it can also refer to the whole temple complex. And I have a map or an illustration for you. This is what's called the Temple Mount, and this is a large structure that in the very middle is the actual uh, temple complex, and then the tall building kind of here that we'll zoom in on a little bit is the temple proper, the actual, like, temple building where the holy place and the holy of holies is. But there's all these courts that are around it, and this huge, massive structure that, Upheld the temple uh, proper, and this was be able to. This was large to enable many pilgrims to come to Jerusalem and worship, particularly during the feasts such as Passover and whatnot. Uh, you can see up at the north side of the Temple Mount is a fortress known today as Antonio uh, Antonio Fortress, and that was built there by the Romans to watch all the activities on the Temple Mount, so that there was no insurrection or anything that would take place, in other words, reminding the Jews that everything happened under the watchful eye of Rome. So this, we can read of the temple or going into the temple, and it could mean going up onto this Temple Mount area. Uh, Jesus overturning the, the tables in the temple very well c- took place within the portico over here, um, but all can be regarded as the temple. And the base for this structure can still be seen today. For those of you going to Israel in the spring, you are going to stand next to massive, massive stones that still are the base of this original structure. You can see Herodian stones that were uh, quarried somewhere in the land of Israel and brought to the Temple Mount and built there. It's absolutely incredible, and, and the foundation of which is still in place today. So this is known as the Temple Mount. It's, it's mounting, it's holding up the Temple and this temple and the Temple Mount dominated the city of Jerusalem. And so next we have an illustration of the city of Jerusalem. And the Temple Mount is up here in the upper right. It's up on Mount Moriah. Uh, going down to the right of it was the Kidron Valley. And off the picture, up the side, was, began the Mount of Olives that would then crest to the east of Jerusalem. And... Uh, you can see that this Temple Mount structure was absolutely massive in the city of Jerusalem. And then you can see the city walls that came. This is the Pool of Siloam down here. These were uh, Herod's Palace up this way. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to reference this uh, city of Jerusalem as we go through the gospel and the different events that take place by it. But just just to see the dominance that the temple had in the city of Jerusalem. Before our purposes this morning, our passage here in Luke 1, the temple proper is the focus of the narrative. And so we have uh, another illustration that zooms in on the temple complex. And what we have here are different courts that, that lead up then into the temple proper. So the setting of this gracious suppli- surprise takes place here in the temple complex in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Second thing that we see in this setting is the ordinary circumstances. The ordinary circumstances, and that is in verse 8, that he was simply on duty. He was on duty. Verse 8, now while serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. And so these verses give us very ordinary circumstances. There's nothing strange taking place here he was, along with his division, was to be on duty twice a year for a week-long segment. So they would come to Jerusalem, they would serve for a week, and then they'd go back home only to return six months later. And he would have been doing this his entire adult life. So again, this is not a brand new thing. This is a routine he's had all through his adult life. Now, some priests lived in Jerusalem, and so they didn't have to travel very far. Others lived in other cities. It was recorded that about a fourth of them lived in Jericho, uh, down uh, by the Jordan River, and, and others lived in the hill country around Jerusalem, and they would come to Jerusalem for their biannual service, and then they would tr- return when the week was over. So these are the ordinary circumstances that we find Zechariah in in this passage. But the third part of the setting that we see is the, an extraordinary event an extraordinary event, and that is the burning of the incense in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says that while he is on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, at this time in the first century, there were many, many priests. Uh, I've read all sorts of estimates uh, from 8,000 to 24,000, which is a huge span, and I couldn't find any one com- two commentators that agreed on, on how many there were. I think the point is that there was a lot of them. And, and so when their division was on duty for the week, uh, apart from the Sabbath, where they were all called to be on duty, they would only get one weekday in which they would serve in order to spread out the load. So during that week that Zechariah is in Jerusalem, he would serve on the Sabbath, and then there would be one weekday, most likely, that he would serve in the middle of the week and be able to, to come to the temple and be able to perform the priestly duties. So you've got many different priests coming, serving on one day. This is their one day of the week, but there's not that many, uh, there's not that many things to do. And so in order to decide who would carry out the specific functions and ceremonies of the day, they would cast lots. Now we're not sure exactly how they cast lots, but probably use some form of rolling of the dice and it's been noted that this would discourage anyone from playing favorites or that they would uh, be, be sad for, for not being picked or whatnot. I think of the typical playground uh, dodgeball scene and uh, Chosen by lots means you can't get mad at anybody. But apparently there were four different lot times that the lots were cast on a given day to decide who would have the privilege of performing special duties. Now again, this is, like I said at the beginning, we're stepping into a foreign land here. We don't, we don't understand temple service. We've maybe seen some pictures and... Thanks to Mrs. A, we've seen lots of illustrations growing up, and, and it's great. But to understand temple services and to understand what the weekly or the daily grind was for a priest, it's, it's foreign to us. So we need to understand what Zechariah was going through in this account. And so let's imagine how the day would have gone or, or at least begun for Zechariah. And so, yeah, picture this temple complex Before dawn, the priests would arrive. They would arrive in the the dark of the early morning hours and they would ceremonially wash themselves to make sure that they were clean to be able to represent Israel and perform the religious duties that they were called to do. They would then split up into two parties with torches and inspect the temple grounds, potentially all these courts and the temple complex as well as even the temple mount. They would then gather in one of the side rooms of the temple uh, believed to be this this uh, room in which the Sanhedrin used to meet in the side and there they would divide up the duties for the day. Now at first two lots were cast for the duties associated with preparing the altar for the morning sacrifice. So Inside uh, next to the temple, here there's the, the large altar in which the animal sacrifices were made. And so there were men who were chosen by lot to uh, gather up the lamb and be take take it up there for the sacrifice and prepare it. Well, that's going on. Again, I said that the priests would arrive in the dark of the early dawn hours. And at that Points. One of the priests would go up to the highest pinnacle of the temple and his job was to watch for dawn, was to watch for the sunrise to peek over the Mount of Olives to the east. And when he would give a signal, when he saw that glimmer of the rays of the sun, there would, he would give a signal to three trumpeteers who would then give a threefold blast of the silver trumpets to ring out throughout the nearby country that the day had begun and the morning sacrifice would be commencing soon. This is like the nation's alarm clock, uh, kind of both physically and spiritually. It's time to wake up. The day has begun, and we are going to offer sacrifice to the Lord then the massive doors of the temple, I believe, these two here that open to the temple proper, were slowly swung open on their massive hinges to allow the Israelites then to enter into the temple complex and to come and to worship together. Now after the gates were open, uh, there were two more lots that were cast for the priests. And the one in our narrative today is the third lot that was cast. And this lot decided who would offer the incense on the altar of incense within the temple. This duty was the highest privilege. And get this, a man would only be chosen to do it once in his life. Only once his entire life. He's he's been a priest all his adult life. And the lot has never been cast to him. But on this day, Zechariah, the lot gets cast, and it's just about the most significant day of his entire life. The highest privilege once in his life, and today is Zechariah's day. You can imagine the somber excitement as Zechariah is getting ready to prepare to prepare and offer the incense. He doesn't want to mess this up. He wants to do it rightly. He's, he's seen it done. He's heard about it being done. And now it's his turn for his hands to take that incense into the holy place. And you can imagine, I, I thought of this as I'm trying to put myself in Zachariah's position, that my mind went back to Leviticus chapter 10 which is the story of Nadab and Abihu, who were sons of Aaron. Aaron being the first priest, and and right after the priesthood is established, Nadab and Abihu were told in Leviticus chapter 10 that they went in to offer incense, and they offered an unauthorized fire. Something about what they put on the altar of incense was abominable to the Lord and fire came out from the Lord and consumed Nadab and Abihu right there in the temple. So you can imagine that every priest after that fact goes in to offer that incense with fear and trembling. Don't you think? They don't want to mess it up. They don't want to see fire come out from before the Lord. Therefore, I can, I can imagine a certain amount of trembling and, and, and trying to make sure everything is, they're rehearsing everything in their minds. Because he understood that if he messed this up in some way, he potentially could lose his life. Now, as I said, this was one of the highest privileges. It was considered the highest mediatorial act on that day because it represented Israel's prayers before the Lord. And the priest, this priest who was offering the incense would go in and approach the Holy of Holies. He wouldn't go inside the Holy of Holies, but he would get the closest that anybody would on that day to the presence of God behind the veil. And while he is Inside, preparing for this act of worship, verse 10 tells us that the multitude is outside praying. It says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. The sacrifice had already been offered on the altar, and now was time for the offering of the incense. It says that they were outside. And I think that the best understanding of that is that they were in what was called the court of the women, which is this large court when they first walked into the temple. The court of the men was through these double doors and then the court of the priest and then into the temple itself. But it's speaking of a multitude, I think that this space would have allowed for men and women to worship together to uh, be praying silently as they wait for this incense to be offered. But it, they could have been spilling into the court of men even closer to the temple as well. We, we're not entirely sure. But it's essentially out, definitely outside the temple proper. And so at this point, the Israelite worshipers have come and have prostrated themselves and they're facing the temple and the altar. They're praying they're offering unspoken worship as they've reflected upon God's grace to them personally and, and upon them as a nation. And, and there's prayers of longing that the Messiah would come that they've hoped for and prayed for all these, all these centuries. And so then as we go back to Zechariah, he's in the court of the priests. He's preparing to walk into the temple. It was tradition for this man to select two assistants on his way in in order to help him as he goes in. These could be friends. These could be relatives. And these assistants would help in offering of the incense. All three of them would have gone somberly, would have walked up these front steps into the temple together. Can we uh, flip to the illustration of the temple proper? So these front steps, they would have started walking up these together as the nation, as it were, were all out in the other courts behind them praying and watching them go in to offer their praise on their behalf, prayers on their behalf, into the holy place. And so they would enter in. This is a cutaway, just to help us see what's inside here, uh, which I'm sure you can all see loud and clear from way back there, right? Um, But they would come to walk into the temple area and stop at a predetermined spot. It was at this point that they were then focused on the altar of incense. And before we cut to the picture of the altar, um, you can see the veil that's right here that is, again, cut away to show the Holy of Holies inside. But right before this veil, there's a, a little... Uh, It shows a a scale person there before the altar of incense. And so you can see it's closest to that veil. It's the closest to the Holy of Holies. We can cut to the illustration of the altar of incense. This uh, was situated equidistant from the north and south walls of the temple and yet was on the far west side of the room, as I showed you, close to that thick veil. God had given the instructions to Moses back in Exodus chapter 30 of how this altar was to be built. It 's roughly about three feet high and a one and a half feet square. And so the three men stood there a certain amount of distance away from this altar. The assistant number one would step forward and would reverently remove the, the remains left on the altar from the previous evenings. Sacrifice or service. He would then leave the building exiting backwards in worship. Leaving the priest and his other assistant. Assistant number two would then step forward. And he had in his censer coals that were taken from the bronze altar outside that uh, had the... the, the, the uh, Animal sacrifice was offered on, and he would scoop up some coals and he'd bring those hot, glowing coals into the holy place. And he would now step forward and he would place those coals on the altar of incense. And the second assistant would then worshipfully exit backwards and out of the holy place. And so Zechariah would then be left alone. And we've got, again, we've got to feel the magnitude of this moment. The whole nation, as it were, is holding its breath. The worshipers are outside. They're before the Lord, praying. They're waiting for Zechariah to finish and to come out. And the priest then would, would, would show up on the steps and he would bless the nation and bless the worshipers. So they're, they're waiting for this man to offer their prayers on their behalf and then to come out and bless them in indication that their prayers have been accepted. And so the people have seen the two assistants exit out of the temple. So now, they know it's up to Zechariah to finish his task on behalf of the nation. Inside, Zechariah, again, is in the middle of the biggest day of his life. He waits until the signal was given by some instrument, and at that point, he would go forward, he would place incense on the glowing hot coals of the altar... This incense that he offered was a unique blend of spices that God had given the recipe for in Exodus 30 as well, in which God told Moses Take sweet spices, stacte, onica, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, each shall there be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt pure and holy. And so this is what he has and he's about to spread it on the altar when the signal's given. He'd wait until he see it kindling and beginning to burn and the smoke arising from it and then he would bow down in worship and reverently reverently withdraw from the holy place himself. But this scripted routine will be disrupted today by an unexpected visitor. This routine that he has so scripted in his mind and that he knows exactly what he's supposed to do and he doesn't want to mess up. And it is interrupted. And here after the announcement of this gracious surprise, or after the setting of this gracious surprise, we see the announcement of the gracious surprise in verses 11 through 17. As Zechariah is performing his duty, being as careful as he can, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now we don't know when in this whole process this angel showed up. But I would guess that it was after the two assistants had left and maybe even after he had put the incense on the altar and he's he's bowing and saying prayers before the altar. But we don't know. It's at some point in this routine. The text says that the angel appeared on the right side of the altar. Look at it in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And the right side is an important, he could have just said an angel standing beside the altar, and we would have gotten the point that an angel showed up. So why the right side? And what is, where exactly is the right side? Well, it'd be natural for us to think of Zachariah's perspective, right? We've been thinking of standing there, the altar's in front of us, and so the right side would be over here, next to the table of showbread, in between the altar of incense and the table of showbread over here. But the perspective of the right hand is typically given from God's perspective, and in this case, then from the Holy of Holies. And so if you think of standing behind the altar and looking at Zechariah, the right side would be between the altar of incense and the menorah, or the golden candlestick, the lampstand. And if you think about language in the Bible about the right hand, we are reminded of this idea of authority, right? Jesus ascended and and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand was significant. It communicates authority and and closeness with God. And so in the same way, for the angel to appear at the right hand of the altar communicated the authority by which he spoke. Now, an angel of the Lord mentioned here must not be confused with the angel of the Lord that we read about throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord was more closely identified with Yahweh himself. And in fact, I believe that it was the pre-incarnate Christ. It was the second person of the Trinity making an appearance uh, as the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, whereas the angel here is different. He's, in one sense, a simple messenger for the Lord but as we'll see, not so simple. The word angel simply means messenger, and so uh, that's the duty and the role that they performed. They brought messages for the Lord. In this case, we find out that the angel's name, we'll find later on in the account, was named Gabriel. Now, how did Zechariah respond to seeing this angel? Look at verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Fear fell upon him. Don't you think you'd be afraid too? I mean, again, the biggest day of your life, you don't want to mess anything up. You have the story of Nadab and Abihu getting smote by the Lord in the back of your mind, and all of a sudden, you get a representative of God himself standing right in front of you, and you're thinking, oh shoot, what did I do? And so he's freaked out, legitimately freaked out. I mean, the text says that he was troubled and fear fell upon him, doubling up the reality that he is scared. But this was a common reaction for those who witnessed angelic messengers because they recognized that they were there on behalf of the holiness of God, on behalf of the holy God. And we don't have time to turn there, but this happened with Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 22. When the angel appeared before him, and Gideon goes, ah, what are you doing here? Or Samson's parents. Uh, an angel appeared, told them that they're going to have a son, and he leaves, and they go, we're going to die. <laughs> we just saw the Lord. Um, Daniel sees an angel, and he falls like a dead man and just collapses. I mean, fear is just this natural response that seizes these people that legitimately see an angel of the Lord. And it's also an appropriate response. I mean, no other response would, would really be due. I mean, he, he wouldn't jump up and down for joy and get all excited and happy. Yay, an angel showed up! I mean, that wouldn't fit. Uh, He wouldn't be sad. He he's he recognized there's a fearful awe that is is coming into that moment. He is closer to the awesome presence of Yahweh than he's ever been before in his life. The Lord, the presence of the Lord is directly behind that curtain. And as he gets to that closest point he's ever been, he suddenly sees a messenger of the Lord. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Zechariah's life flashed before his eyes. He thought his life was over. Because remember that purity and holiness were crucial to their performance on duty. And he knew deep down that even though he was blameless and he was righteous, a righteous person knows that deep down they're unworthy before a holy God. And Zechariah knew that. That he was only there and only able to be worthy and holy because of the work of God. And he knew that even though he had obeyed God's commandments, he still had a sinful heart. And so he, no doubt, probably thought that the angel was there to dispense judgment upon him. In such a high-stakes situation, he felt the piercing light of God's holiness. He would have agreed with the psalmist in Psalm 130 that we saw this summer where he writes, if you would, should count iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And Zechariah knew that he couldn't stand in that piercing light of God's holiness. Now, you and I are not likely to face an angel this week, but we too should come face to face with the holiness of God. We need to see ourselves evaluated, not based upon the standard of others, but upon the standard of God's holy character expressed in his holy word. And when the spotlight of God's word is shown into our hearts, we see how ugly it is. And just like Isaiah, who saw a vision of the Lord and exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we should cry out in repentance when we see the holiness of God. Now, the Christian life is not one of constant dreaded fear before God because we, praise God, are in Jesus Christ. We are are in the Son of God, and we have been justified by faith, and we are accepted fully and completely. But we should always carry around with us a sense of our unworthiness because of our sin, a humility in light of God's holiness. Now, I know that there's some of you here today that you don't have a great sense of God's holiness. That you think you're doing okay. That you've kind of figured out life and you're cool with how life is for you. But you haven't evaluated yourself according to the standard of God's word. And if we look there and see that God's standard is perfection, therefore be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48. And as I mentioned earlier, that we are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Salvation is dependent upon us having a holy fear of the Lord and coming upon our knees before him, and crying out that he would save us from his judgment upon our sin. Because the only salvation that we have is found in the Son of God. The only safety from the wrath of God is found in the Son of God. And that is by placing our faith in him that his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the grave was sufficient to pay for your sins and for mine. And that is the only way that one day when we all stand before the presence of God, that we can stand confidently before him. If you should count iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In our own iniquities, we can't stand. But standing in Christ, we will be able to stand faultless before the throne. And that life of a free record and all of your sin washed away and forgiveness forevermore is offered to every single one of you. All you need to do is cry out to the Lord right where you're at, ask him to save you, to be merciful to you and confess of your sin of ingratitude and rebellion against him and life will be given to you. Come to Christ this morning and find life in his name. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father forgive us for not keeping with us a sense of your majestic holiness of not walking in the fear of the Lord. But I pray this morning that you would help us to see what Zechariah felt was 2000 years ago that you are an awesome and holy God and you are able to end our lives if it be your will you are the sovereign over us but we thank you that you have provided your son Jesus Christ so that we do not have to stand before you in our filthy rags but we can stand in the righteousness of Christ and be accepted forevermore we praise you for this in Christ's name amen